Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today we have a special guest, Father Calvin Robinson. He is an Anglican uh, deacon in London. He's coming to us from London and he's on his way to becoming an Anglican priest. And uh, he, I want to talk about, he gave a speech at Oxford Union a few weeks ago that on biblical sexuality that was amazing. It's a 12-minute speech. We're going to put the link down below. You have to watch the speech. And I want to talk to him about what's going on with the Church of England, because now they're, quote, blessing same-sex couples. And uh, I want to also talk about the points he made in his speech and the fallout from that speech. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So... Welcome, Father Calvin Robinson. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to have you. So uh, first I want to, before we get into this, the speech you gave at Oxford Union, which was amazing, which we'll put the link down below. Thank you. I, I want to talk about what's going on with the Church of England, what uh, is going on with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. By the way, I was named after an Archbishop of Canterbury, so it, this is a very, <laughs> it's a personal thing. Uh, to be, but what what's going on in the Church of England in terms of blessing same sex couples, and how did this all come about? Yeah, oh, that, that's a bigger question. But what's happening is that the Church of England has allowed through its synod, which is its general governing body, um, the blessing of same sex individuals within same sex relationships. I'm being very careful with my language here because it started out. They said, look. Same-sex couples, the individuals can be blessed, which, of course, anyone can be blessed, technically speaking. But what they, what it ended up being is that the Bishop of London actually said same-sex relationships might be blessed. Some of those might be sexual in nature. So what we're looking at here is the undermining of the the church's teaching on marriage. Because in the UK, you can get married in a secular world, you know, outside of a church, uh, we had civil partnerships for anyone at first, but then the campaign continued and 
same-sex couples wanted to call it marriage as well, which I find baffling because marriage means one man and one woman in union under God. But anyway, that's the semantics of it. So in the in the laws of the UK, you can get married as a same-sex couple, and then you can go to church and have that marriage blessed. And what does that mean to bless? I don't understand even what that means to bless it. Um, oh, that's a very good question. It's to ask God for His blessing to for to ask God to um, call it good. Now, God has very clearly given us in the Christian context, at least, the scriptures which say that marriage is between one man and one woman. So, marriage is heterosexual and monogamous. But at the same time, He has also passed judgment on other types of relationships and said that actually same-sex relationships are abhorrent to him. Therefore, and he's called, two, so there are two elements here. Fornication is a sin, so sex outside of marriage is a sin, as in sex when you're not a man and, and or a woman married together, that's a sin. But also sodomy is a sin, so homosexual sex is a sin. Right. So for God would not bless something that he calls a sin. That's the opposite of a blessing, right? So a sin is just something that separates you from God. Uh, and he said, these are the things you shouldn't do if you want to be with him. So the church is saying, we are going to ask God to bless something, even though he's already said that that's something he doesn't want you to do. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's a logical fallacy. But they, they stop short of changing the church's formal doctrine on regarding marriage between one man and one woman, correct? Yeah. I mean, they can say that. That's a technicality. They can say, well, the, the church still teaches that marriage is between one man and one woman. But when in practice they are blessing same-sex marriages you know we believe in the church of england that lex surrendi lex credendi uh, that the you are what you do you you believe what you pray and how you worship is what you believe therefore if the liturgy allows for the blessing of same-sex marriage we believe in same-sex marriage essentially that's how it works and and again so back to the question i mean it's a bigger question i guess but how did this come about and what led Archbishop Welby to to make this decision and how how did this all come about? This is the bigger question. Uh, in the short term, it came about because the church is well, the Church of England is dying, right? So, for the first time in our history, Christianity is not a majority faith in this in this country, and the church has been chasing societal norms in order to you know what I would call virtue signal. So, it's in order to let the wider public know we are we are nice you know we do nice things we're inclusive we're d- diverse we're equitable all the all the things you'd expect to see in, in the public square the church has been parroting you know critical race theory gender um theory queer theory it's been using these what i would call neo-marxist ideologies to try and grapple more people in but of course what the church western church hasn't realized is that the more you try to appease the masses the more you lean towards secular society the less attractive you are because the whole purpose of the church is that it's countercultural it is static it is absolute in its moral compass and it's different to what's going on in the rest of the world so when people are sick and tired of the degeneracy the debauchery and all the nastiness that goes on in the normal world they can go to the church and live a christ-like life instead and but the, the, the so that's the short term answer. But the larger, the bigger picture is that, well, I think it's liberalism infiltrating the Church of England. Uh, the Church, big C, will never die because it's you know Christ instituted the Church, therefore he will always make sure that right. it, it is around. However, the Church of England is an institution, and that institution has been fallen since the beginning. Really, if we go all the way back to Henry the Eighth in allowing divorce, but it was always a matter of conscience. 
individual priests in this country can choose whether they want to remarry someone. Now, any Orthodox priest would tell you it's not possible because marriage is not only heterosexual and monogamous, it's also indissoluble, as in you're married for life. Right. If, that, if one of the partners dies, then someone can get married again. But if, if two people are still alive after being married, even if they get a divorce under law, under the eyes of God, they're still married in the Christian context. But of course, Henry VIII had other, other ideas, and uh, you know the rest of history. But that's how it's that's how it all began. Yeah, and so what has been before I get to the react? Well, what's been the reaction of this before I get to the Global South communion? What's been the reaction of this decision in the UK? Uh, well. The LGBTQ plus IA lobby have been upset because they haven't gotten what they wanted. They wanted just full out homosexual marriage within the church. So they're not happy. And then the Orthodox Christians are not happy because we're saying, well, what you're doing is going against scripture, which is going against the faith. So neither side are happy. And the mainstream media don't understand it. The politicians don't understand it. They're all saying, well, why can't the church be equal? Why shouldn't the Church of England uh, embrace the idea of equality and same-sex marriage? Uh, of course, these people saying this would never say the same to Islam or Judaism or any other faith for that matter. It's always Christianity. And even within Christianity, it's always the Church of England that gets the pressure. I don't see them writing to the Pope to say that the Catholic uh, tradition of the, of the Christian faith has to change its teaching. But the reaction has not been positive by anyone, really. And, and then what was the reaction of the, what is the Global South Fellowship? Explain what that is and what was their reaction. Right, so Anglicanism is bigger than just the Church of England. It may have started here, you know, when the Pope excommunicated Elizabeth I, the Church of England became what we now refer to as the Anglican Church. And... <clears throat> we spread that around the world. You know, the British Empire had its hand in every corner of the earth and we sent missionaries all over the world to take Christ to different areas. And that was the, the Anglican expression of the Christian faith. So there are Anglicans all over the world and we're all in communion together or we have be, been all in communion together. And the Archbishop of Canterbury tends to be seen as the first among equals. He's definitely not a Pope-like figure. He doesn't have any power or authority, just influence, but as the first among equals... And the palace in uh, London, right? Yeah, yeah, but all, all, the, all the bishops have a palace. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, so, the wider Anglican communion, which includes the Global South and GAFCON, and in fact, there's a massive overlap between the two. There aren't many people that are in the Global South that aren't in GAFCON and vice versa, but that makes up the... 80% of Anglicans around the world. So mo the majority of Anglicans around the world are small o orthodox Anglicans. They still believe in you know the primacy of scripture, uh, in sexual ethics and, and marriage and all of that stuff. And they have now said that the Church of England has left them and is now in impaired communion with the rest of the Anglican communion, which is fascinating um, because it means that the Church of England is now for the first time outside of the wider Anglican communion, which has been leading it ever since its inception. We'll be right back after this short break. And how many people roughly are there in the, in the Global South communion or fellowship? So how many I, congregants? We're talking, we're talking millions, like tens of millions. I, I can't remember if it's 80 million or 100 million Anglicans worldwide, Whatever the number of Anglicans is, 80% of them are within GAFCON and the Global South. 
And so they, and the Archbishop said that, quote, they are no longer able to recognize the present Archbishop of Canterbury as the first among equals, as you said, leader of the global communion. So what does that mean exactly? And what was uh, Archbishop Welby's reaction to this? He's been quite snaky in his reaction. So he said something along the lines of, you know, I will not cling on to power. If there is a majority decision in the uh, Anglican councils, then I will respect that decision. Not, uh, but that, and, and that sounds like he's capitulating or you know stepping down. But actually, there's the communion, and then there are diff- there, there are four elements to the Anglican councils. Essentially, he's head of three of the four. So you know, it's up to him essentially if he steps down or not. But they're saying it doesn't matter because they're not recognizing him. But the next step from that is that the Gafcon meet every few years. And there's a meeting this year in Rwanda, in Africa, um, next month, actually, where all the African primates and all of the Global South primates will come together and decide how do we, as a communion, pray together and travel together on this faithful journey without Canterbury? And what does that mean? And do we elect a new leader uh, as first among equals or do we not have one? And all of these decisions, I suspect, will be part of the wider conversation happening next month. And... Tell us, what, what is your role in the Anglican Church? Ooh. So I'm a deacon in the Anglican Church. Uh, I was, my, my calling was recognized in the Church of England, and I was trained in the Church of England, but I left the Church of England last year at the end of my training, after I'd finished my training, uh, over a, a battle with them over wokeness, essentially. Uh, the, the Church of England has become incredibly liberal, and I'm conservative both in my politics and in my faith, in my, theo- in my theology. And that became a barrier, actually, uh, which was is, is symptomatic of all of this wider thing that we're seeing now. But I joined the Gafcon communion, and, and uh, my church is a Gafcon church. There are several different jurisdictions, but I'm part of the Free Church of England. They and are, your, your, your church is, in London, is based in London, right? Yeah, so I have a, a church in Halston, which is in northwest London. Right. And so also um, the, the, uh, the synod said they voted to, quote, lament and repent for not being welcoming towards LGBTQ people. What what do they mean by that, lament and repent? Well, what do they mean by not being welcoming to LGBT people? Well, that's, uh, yeah, what does that mean? I mean... <laughs> yeah, well, it means, it means yeah. they haven't been affirming their lifestyle. So, so the Christian teaching so far is that some people are called to marriage, some people are called to singleness, but right. if you're called to marriage, then you, you can get married. And, you know, as Christians, we don't believe in contraception. And so the purposes of of sex with, is within marriage for procreation, to start a family, which is good for the, the family. It's good for the worship of God and it's good for the community, right? Because we need to procreate to survive as a species. But if you're not called to marriage, then you're expected to live a celibate life. You're expected to be chaste. And that's been a problem and a solution because there are many, many faithful people who, who would consider themselves part of the LGB community, you know, who have managed to, to live a faithful life in Christ, denying their sexual gratification. That's the, great that's the story of my conversion. Yeah. 13 years ago. Um, right. Yeah. So I, I am totally. Oh, sorry, sorry for mansplaining to you. I didn't, I didn't... <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm glad you're saying this, but uh, yeah, continue. Because these people have been working hard, many of them their whole lives, to live 
in, within scripture. And then what I feel has happened now is that the Church of England has undermined all of that by saying, well, actually, it doesn't matter what the Bible says and it doesn't matter what your sex is. If you love someone, love is love and love is a good thing and God is love. Therefore, why is this not okay? So, so they're now teaching people that actually you can pretty much have sex with whoever you like. You don't even have to be married and you can be of the same sex. And that undermines people's faith. It undermines their hard work. And I think it, it is, it's quite a wrong thing to do. But then these people in the LGBTQ plus IA community, the wider community, have been saying, but this is the right thing because you have to affirm people in who they truly are. And that's forgetting that we are made in the image of God and God made us the way we are, absolutely. But God, but we are fallen individuals and we're all sinners and God wants us to not sin. He wants us to live holy lives in a relationship with him. And that, so that means that these people that say love is love are undermining the gospel and misunderstanding the gospel. And these people that say the church hasn't been welcoming to LGBT people mean the, means the church hasn't been saying what they want the church to be saying. They want to shape the faith around their lifestyles rather than faith change, rather than shaping their lifestyles around the faith. Yeah. And, and just the, the damage done by this to, to those who were, you know, living faithfully to the scriptures who had, who had come out of that lifestyle and now, and you know, they were willing to de- deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Christ. And now they're being told, wait, you didn't need to do that at all. Actually, we just, that was a mistake. And you could have lived any way you wanted for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, whatever it is. So how does that make you feel, Beckett? Well, I mean, I, well, I know it's false teaching, so it doesn't make me, it just makes me, it, just, it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, this is happening all over the, the world and evangelicalism everywhere. But um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make me feel uh, wronged in any way because I know that they are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, so it's just a, it's a bizarre, bizarre situation. And so tell, so I want to get into the the speech you gave at Oxford, Oxford Union. First of all, how did how did that speech come? How did that debate or talk come about? And uh, and then we're going to get into kind of some of the points of that talk. Uh, I was invited to the Oxford Union a while back over something else that I couldn't do. And so they came back to me on this debate. And I was concerned because I'd not heard from them in a while, so I didn't know who I was debating against or who I was debating with until the very, very last minute. And I found out th- the reason for that was that they were able to get three bishops for the proposing side, and the proposition was this house supports same-sex marriage in the church. So they got three bishops arguing for her- a heretical stance, and they couldn't find people to argue against. Uh, they asked every single Catholic bishop. None of them would come. So, so we've got f- three Anglican bishops on one side, and then we had me and Dr. Ian Paul, who is a fantastic theologian, on the other side. But first of all, we're outnumbered, and then we, so then you count in the students. So there was a student on the proposition as well, and she was abysmal. Uh, her debating skills were terrible, and uh, she started out by saying she's not a Christian and so has no skin in the game anyway. And then the two people on our side, the two students on our side, were also terrible. Because they started off by saying, we don't believe in this side of the debate. However, we're here, so here are our points. It's like, how, how do you expect to win a debate by doing that? You know, <laughs> but I think they were afraid of the, of the mob. 
um, that yeah. would lynch them if they had argued genuinely for the side of we don't believe in same-sex marriage. But I just think at that point, just, just don't bother, please, because it, it ended up being six against two. And that was horrible enough. But the audience were clearly uh, a majority against us. It was a very toxic, very hostile environment to debate in. I left thinking, I don't really want to do one of these again, to be honest with you, not for a good while. And the experience was was not good. Uh, but the video didn't get online until a good couple of weeks afterwards. And the, the reception to the video has been entirely different to to my reception in the in the chamber, which it's, it seems to be reaching people, um, which I don't think was the case in Oxford. Well, what's interesting is while, when you were giving this this your side of the debate, uh, the the audience seemed to be quite respectful in terms of of letting you speak and not protesting. I mean, there were maybe a couple of small outbursts. But that was surprising yeah. to me. It was, that was surprising to me as well, because when I debated at the Cambridge Union, there were lots of outbursts and, pe- and it was almost as if you could see uh, the demonic activity in the room because people just couldn't sit still. They couldn't hear what I had to say. It was physically affecting them. At Oxford, at least for the most part, they gave me the benefit of hearing me speak. Uh, but still, it wasn't a case of in good faith. And, you know, a lot of the people that got up to make floor speeches, you know, they were, they were throwing ad hominems at me. The opening introduction actually was very uncharitable, but then people got up and said things, you know, you, your speech was boring, you lack charisma, and you had nothing interesting to say. It's like, well, challenge my ideas if you think I'm wrong, but come on, be, be uh, mature about it. Yeah, so let's talk about what, what you did say in the speech. Um, one of the things you, you quoted Thomas Aquinas on marriage. What did, can you can you give us that quote? Yes. Uh, so in his Summa Theologica, he says that marriage is for the purposes of one man and one woman, and it's beneficial for the begetting of children. And I like that terminology because we don't often use that word begetting other than when we're talking about Christ himself. Um, it's for the good of offspring, for both educational and developmental purposes. Necessary, he says, for the perfection of the community and for the worship of God. So, so to break that down, he's saying... Marriage is so that you can be blessed with children. And the blessing of children isn't just for you. It's for the greater community. And it's also so there are more people to worship God, which is the whole purpose of being a human being. Yeah, exactly. And um, and I talk about this on the show a lot. Uh, you know, a lot of people may think, well, what's the harm of gay marriage? What I mean, what really is it? How does that harm you personally? Or how does that harm society? And it... it and it, what it does is it undermines genuine marriage. And it, yeah. so it, it, it contributes to the breakdown of the family, which leads to all manner of societal ills. Like I live in Los Angeles and, you know, it's rampant homelessness, mm-hmm. drug addiction, uh, mental health issues, all kinds of issues result come from that. And so that's why... At the very, you know, beside beside putting aside the, the sin aspect of it, mm-hmm. the societal aspect of it is a it's a huge component because it does contribute to the, the breakdown of the family, which br- contributes to the breakdown of society. And that should be common sense, right? And when you hear these activists saying "smash heteronormativity," people should stop and think, "Wait, why would you want to?" Sm-? You can argue for alternative lifestyles to be seen as acceptable or tolerated within society as well as the heteronormative lifestyle. But if we no longer encourage and promote the heteronormative 
then how will we survive as a people? We won't. It's it's really, they, it is breaking down of the family in order to break down Western society. You know, there are there are two targets. It's a pincer movement: break down the family, break down the faith, and then that is it. That is what Western society is built upon, and that's why they're Marxists. And Satan is laughing all the way to the bank. And um, you, so you also quote the three reasons for marriage from the Book of Common Prayer, which uh, can you just tell us briefly what the Book of Common Prayer is for people who don't know what that, that means? And what are the three reasons for marriage? Yeah, so the Book of Common Prayer is, or should be at least, the authority for Anglicans. So it's our catechism, essentially. And it contains in it the ordinal, which is the order of service for ordaining uh, deacons, priests, and bishops. And, you know, it's it's got morning and evening prayer in there and the service of Holy Communion and the catechism is built in to the services. So for example, this the service for holy matrimony contains within it the catechism which states that holy matrimony is for three reasons. First, it was ordained for the procreation of children to be brought up in the fear and nature of the Lord and to praise his holy name. Secondly, it was ordained for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication that such persons as have not the gift of continence, continency might marry and keep themselves undefiled members of Christ's body. And thirdly, it was ordained for the mutual society, help and comfort that the one ought to have the other, both in prosperity and adversity. So it builds on what St. Paul said. It builds on what St. Aquinas said um, in saying that the whole purpose of marriage is to have children and the whole purpose of having children is to, is for the praise of his holy name um, to be brought up in the fear and nature of the Lord. And, but he also goes on to say what, what St. Thomas also said that it's a remedy against sin. That, that, that grace of mm-hmm. marriage allows people to have sex without it being sinful, to avoid the sin of fornication. And that's for people who are, who do not have the gift of continency. So people who aren't called to singleness are called to marriage. And then it, the third reason is, yeah, that mutual for the, for the mutual society, help and comfort um, for the prosperity and, adver- and adversity of all. And I think those three reasons are quite straightforward and quite good. Yeah, they and, and yeah, if you're burning with passion, if you're as Paul says in First Corinthians seven, then get married. But you know, if you have the gift of, of singleness, then then do that because um, it's better for the Paul. I mean, Paul says that you know, I wish you could all be like I am. Uh, single because you have more time to devote to the kingdom. But um, Paul and Aquinas are both very funny on that, aren't they? They're very, both, they both seem to see that marriage is something uh, for those people that, that can't control themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, and then you, I think you mentioned Ephesians five when Paul talks about, you know, Christ is the bridegroom, the church is, is the bride. Yeah. And this is, and you said, I think you said the church is attempting to marry itself. Talk about that a little bit, because I loved how you, you put that. Yeah, I, I think the idea here is that is the church has always taught that it is the body of Christ, right? But it's also said that Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And that is the that is how we're supposed to look at the relationship between us and him, between he and us. And if we're separating those things out and saying, okay, now a bride can marry a bride. What we're saying is that we can marry ourselves. And I see that as a form of idolatry. We're making gods of ourselves and we're leaving Jesus Christ out of the picture. We don't need him anymore because we're marrying on, onto each other. And that's very, very sad. But I think that's 
symptomatic of everything that we're seeing in society right now, this whole inward looking mentality of, you know, I create my own truth. I am my own God. That is, it's the most basic of idolatry. Yeah. And that's the, 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 the trouble one of I mean, the trouble with, with same sex or homosexual sex is the sameness of it. And the, there's, and God designed this otherness, this, this complementarity uh, between a man and a woman. And, and so when you, when you have Christ, the bridegroom and the church as the bride, there's an otherness about it. There's not, as you said, there's not a sameness about it. So, it makes it doesn't make sense if you bless same sex marriage uh, then there it doesn't make sense in terms of ephesians 5 so um that just goes out the window as well and you you also say in the in the speech that this opens kind of the doors to polygamy talk about that for a sec yeah i think it's a very basic point and and people will hate me for it but if we're saying that love is love and we're saying that two men can enter a marriage together in a loving relationship and two women can do so, then why is it just two? If we're saying that the rules of marriage no longer count, it's no longer heterosexual, why do the rules of monogamy count? Why, if love is love, why can't a man love three men? And that can surely, mathematically, that's a lot more love than just two men. But of course, it's all a logical fallacy because love isn't love. Love has boundaries and God taught us what those boundaries are. But people want to break down those boundaries. First of all, they don't understand what love is. But secondly, they don't want the boundaries because it's not love that they're looking for. Yeah, I mean, Paul defines what love is in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, wrongdoing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So biblically, we know what love is. Yeah, Yeah. we know what love is. Um, It's winning the good of the other. But the world has a very different understanding of what love because, is. Because, yeah, again, it's inward. Like, it's our, our idolatry. Again, we think love is what we want and what we need, rather than if we look at it as sacrificial, as in biblical, as in willing the good of the other, then it's about what we can do for the other person. And we've, we've always got it flipped around. We've inverted it. Yeah. And so what um, – there was one – oh, the – the, I think the title of the the motion was living in living in love and faith. Is that right? Was that the yeah. title of the general synod's motion? Yeah. <laughs> what does that even mean? Living in love and faith. It's just kind of a. Well, it's, again, it's using that word love, isn't it, to dilute the conversation? So, it's it's saying, how can people be faithful in their love for people of the same sex? It's, it's not acknowledging what love means. It's not acknowledging agape. It's not acknowledging what the faith is. And it's, it's using semantics. And this is what the devil often does. Not just uses words in a tricky way, but uses half-truths because a half-truth is a much better lie than a full-on lie. And we all know that's how he operates. Right. And, and so what, what was the kind of immediate fallout after you gave that speech? What, what, what happened to you personally? Me personally? <sighs> I felt spiritually drained. You know, these things, well, this is a Christian podcast. I can say, I can say this to you, but there's a spiritual attack. Whenever you stand up and speak the truth in this way, in in this kind of environment, Uh, you have to wear the armor of Ephesians six, but that doesn't mean you don't feel the effects. And I took a couple of days off after this and 
you know, I've actually listened back to some of the audio clips I sent on, on WhatsApp to some of my friends at the time because I, I think I was probably quite depressed afterwards. I was not in a good place. It took a, it took a lot out of me. And I thought, I don't really want to do this anymore. What am I doing this for? And I know that it's not supposed to be easy and it's prophesied and, you know, we're told we will be blessed for being persecuted, but it doesn't make it any easier in the moment. And, you know, <laughs> yes. look, looking back now, I'm, I'm glad I did it. And as I say, it's, it's it's bearing a lot of fruit internationally and people are hearing it, but in the moment it was tough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, um, you know, it was interesting because it felt you, it, it felt like uh, you could hear a pin drop when you were speaking at Oxford union. It just felt like there was so much tension in that room. Um, you could, it was palpable even <laughs> via YouTube. Um, but so what, um, where does, what's going to happen, where, what's going to happen, what do you think is going to happen to the Church of England in the UK? What's, what's going to happen to them going forward with this? Either they have to repent and return to the scriptures. And as an Anglican faith, they should be believing in the primacy of scripture. Scripture should be very important to, to Anglicans. Either they do that or they dissolve and I think the way the church is going, I often say what the bishops are looking for right now is to leave behind a perfectly embalmed liberal corpse. They know that the Church of England is dying. It's a managed decline. They are managing its decline, but they want to leave behind a good impression. And they want, pe- they want people to look at them as having left behind a good legacy. It's like you saw, you saw the church out, but you did a good job. And, you know, you managed to defeat the homophobia and all the transphobia that went on for centuries before. Well done, you. It's, you know, they want that virtue signaling pat on the back. I, I honestly think that's what they're after because it has been infiltrated by liberals. And that's, that's, their, that's their thinking mentality. So the Church of England could die. Um, but the church won't, and the church will, will see a revival, maybe some kind of reformation, something will happen, and we'll all be better off for it. Yeah, and the, by the way, what, in the global south, what, just tell us what some of the, what are some of the countries in that communion? So Rwanda, Nigeria, Uganda, pretty much most of the African continent and South Asia, um, just basically the rest of the world. Yeah, and it seems like that's going to continue to flourish and grow because they're they're orthodox and they're teaching. While in, in the UK, it's going to decline and, and continue to decline. And we can see we've got different examples of this. So the reason that GAFCON came together in the first place is because in America, uh, they ordained a bishop who was in an openly practicing gay relationship, Gene Robinson. Uh, and a lot of people said, well, then we can't serve under him because you're dragging us into apostasy. This is a heretical, blasphemous relationship that's going on. Uh, we need alternative oversight. So they brought in the African bishops and said, will you be our bishop? And they said, yeah, of course. And they put t- together the Jerusalem Declaration, which I recommend people look up. It's very sound. I think actually the Jerusalem Declaration historically will be looked at as like an ecumenical creed because it's just statements of faith that we have pretty much always believed in, right? And it says, within GAFCON, we all sign up to this Jerusalem declaration and we will, they said, we will look after you as bishops remotely. And then it became more of an infrastructure uh, that they consecrated bishops within America, outside of the Episcopal church, which had had fallen and formed the ACNA, the Anglican church in North America. And we've seen a very similar thing happening in Canada and in Australia. Um, It hasn't really 
taken hold in the United Kingdom yet, as it has in those countries, but this might be the moment that it does, because a lot of evangelical churches are saying, we cannot function under you. You know, there are some, the three biggest churches in the UK are, happen to be in London, and a couple of them have said, we can't serve under the Bishop of London. Uh, I mean, they should have said, said that because she's an ordained woman, so it doesn't work anyway if they're, if they're truly orthodox. But anyway, they right. said because she is the one who's saying that we can bless sin. And that's entirely inappropriate. So they're looking for alternative oversight. It's much harder in the UK because we have an established church. Nowhere else seems to have that system of our Church of England is built into our laws, into our infrastructure. And it means that everyone belongs to a geographical um, denomination, a geographical uh, diocese with a diocesan bishop. So I don't know how they're going to get around it, but I suppose that's what they're working on right now. Yeah, and and going back to... Archbishop Welby, I mean, it, it seems like a loving thing to do to bless <clears throat> same-sex couples or bless same-sex marriage, whatever. It seems like that's a loving thing, but it's actually the opposite. It's like, it couldn't be, it's the most unloving thing you could possibly do. Yeah, because... Leading that person to, eter- to eternal destruction. Absolutely. You've put you know, nail on the head right there. It's, they want to be kind, they want to be nice, but they don't want to be truthful. And they forget that truth comes from love and love comes from truth. And of course, you have to be compassionate in the way that you put the truth forward, but you have to be truthful. I, I think we're seeing this in the wider argument. It's not just in same sex, it's in the trans argument. And we should be saying, look, I love you. God loves you as you are. You know, you are you were born a man because God made you that way. He, God knew you before you were born. He thought of you before you were born. He designed you this way and you are your body. You cannot be in the wrong body because you are your body. You are two things. You are your body and your soul. That is what makes you up as an entity. Therefore, I love you as you are. I want to help you love yourself as you are because God also loves you as you are. That's the loving message, the truth, rather than saying, I see what you mean. You're not happy. How can I support you in this, you know, transitioning from this sex into that sex? How can, cause we know it's not possible. You know, you know your sex is immutable. It's in every part of your DNA. Um, it's that wanting to affirm rather than challenge. And you have to challenge in love. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the way Jesus and, you know, obviously interacted with tax collectors and prostitutes, but say what you, you, you quoted at the end of your speech, uh, I, I love that quote. Can you just say that? Well, the, the one about the tax collectors, I said that Jesus Christ spent time with tax collectors and prostitutes, but it is they that went away changed, not he. You know, Christ spent time with sinners, but he always told them, go, sin no more. And right. I think that's such an important message because as a church, of course, we should welcome sinners in. That's our job. The church is there for sinners, but we shouldn't expect people to continue sinning. And one of the things I often hear is people say, but Christ died for our sins, so it doesn't matter. It's like, no, that's not the purpose. You're misunderstanding. He died for our sins to free us from our sins so that we, he can offer us eternal salvation. But to do that, there are criteria. We have to repent. We have to turn away from our sins and turn toward him. We don't get the best of both worlds or the worst of both worlds. Well, amen to that. And we're going to leave it at that. Where can people find you online? Um, CalvinRobinson.com has links to all my social medias and my sub stacks. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for being bold in that speech at Oxford Union. And again, guys, we're going to put the link down below so you can watch the full thing. And um, thank you, Father Calvin Robinson. I appreciate it.
Thank you very much. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. What do you do when the world around you is falling apart? It's amazing to me how many people are breathing air. They're going about their business and doing the things you're supposed to do. But if you really ask them, they know that on the inside, they are spiritually and emotionally and relationally dead. If we're not careful, all of us can experience that death. When what we need to do, even as the world around us is falling apart, we need to learn how to march when it would be easier to stay where we are and die. Join me each week on the March or Die show as we discuss that and so much more.